Uh, Archie's going to be uh, preaching for us from 1 Corinthians 4, uh, verses 1 to 7. Uh, Please turn there. I'm going to read it out for us. 1 Corinthians 4, verses 1 to 7. This, then, is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now, it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. I care very little if I am judged by you or by any human court. Indeed, I do not even judge myself. My conscience is clear, but that does not make me innocent. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of the heart. At that time, each will receive their praise from God. Now, brothers and sisters, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, do not go beyond what is written. Then you will not be puffed up in being a follower of one of us over against the other. For who makes you different from anyone else? What do you have that you did not receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? This is the word of the Lord. This time last week, I sat over there as Gary Miller was teaching on transformation uh, and he was speaking particularly on that morning, about there being no evidence of transformation in the characters of the Old Testament. So I sat there sitting in judgement, sitting on judgement on what Gary said, on how he argued, how he handled the Old Testament, who am I to know that, and the consequences of his thesis. And what I did is exactly what's expected that we must all do because that's what we train you to do, and I hope that we train you to do it well. How else can you prevent error from being assimilated into us here at the college? And so with that in my head, as I return to this series in 1 Corinthians that I've been working through, I am very, very troubled. Now, I know that not everybody has journeyed with me through this series of nine sermons so far, In fact, there's only one person who has, and he's standing out the front, and he can't even remember them all. Uh, (laughs) But in this section, in chapter 4, verses 1 to 7, verse 5 is a troubling one for me. Judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. And what troubles me most is my disposition to judge. And as I hold that disposition, I actually think it's a virtue. But if I am to take the word of God seriously, is it wrong to judge? And is it especially wrong to judge other Christians? For recall the words of the Lord Jesus, judge not lest you be judged. And so I'm assuming that the desire to judge is common for us all, that you're like me in it. So it's important to think through about judging and its appropriateness. Now certainly we all know that a judgmental spirit has very big and very destructive downsides. Um, Just to pick up a couple of the problems with judgmentalism, judging can reinforce our tribalism. So I judge somebody negatively who is not of my group or I think they don't think like my group. And what that does in my judging is push them away. 
what it does is it cements my tribe and it puts walls around my clan and every time I do it, it further justifies that process of excluding other people and putting people with other views down. Now, I don't do social media, but I know that's precisely what happens. I put down the opinion that's different to mine, I ridicule, I push away, and so I ignore and I can dismiss and demean contrary positions. And that makes my group more intact and we're more confirmed in our position. And as we do that, what so often follows is that settled and hard-hearted attitude and posture towards others that permits no space or sympathy for the brokenness and failures that they have and no place for repentance and change. We saw it just a couple of months ago in our federal election. There was a thoughtless Facebook post by an 18-year-old made while he was sitting bored in a lecture 10 years ago. And at election time, it created such outrage that in May 2019, he had to withdraw from the election without being even permitted to acknowledge that he was wrong or that he'd grown up or that he'd changed. That's one of the dangers of our tribal judgmentalism. And even though we know there are these and so many ugly aspects to judgment, I, we, still engage in it. Why do we persist in judging? Why do I persist in judging? I think one of the reasons is it gives me the adrenaline rush of superiority. Sitting on another person, in judgment on another person, always gives you that position of superiority because I decide on you. I am higher than you. I know best. I see the whole story. I can determine what should happen. I am so smart. Like the simple and obvious way to take the tenth wicket at Headingley. Why couldn't they work it out? <laughs> yeah, that's that superiority. And what happens is we get addicted to that rush of superiority and our judging heart swells and so we go looking for the next fix of superiority. Terrible, isn't it? And it seems this very tribalism with its judgmentalism is occurring in Corinth. If you go back to the early chapters, there are the different factions, the different parties. I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Peter. And so the Apostle says to this tribal and factional group of people, judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. As I read that verse, I don't think that I could have written it if I was in Paul's situation. The Corinthian church members are passing judgment on who to side with and especially on whether to even bother with the Apostle Paul. And so this judgment that they are making has very heightened dangers to it. Their very salvation, the Corinthian salvation, is at stake. They're in danger of emptying the cross of its power. How could that be possible? But that's what the factionalism is doing. And Paul knows that he has the mind of Christ and if they dismiss him, then what that it does is extinguish from the Corinthians the wisdom of God and so takes away their only hope. These are very high stakes in the way they judge the apostle. But it's more than that. It's so very personal because in their judging of Paul, the Corinthians are not just sitting in judgment on an idea. 
but they're judging Paul himself. They're judging the person, Paul's identity, Paul's credibility, Paul's motives. I don't think I could have written, judge nothing before the appointed time. To be honest, I suspect I would have written, make sure you judge properly. Make sure you get me right. Here is what I am like and here is why I am right. That would be my first attempt. And then, perhaps, if I had a moment of clarity and the courage to ask tough questions, I might explore, did I do anything wrong? Was there any validity in them judging me negatively? But that's not what Paul does. In verses 3 and 4 of our passage here, he gives a list of how to respond when being judged. In fact, it's a, it's a list, really, of how not to judge. So, firstly, verse 3. I care very little if I am judged by you. I suspect that we care very much how we are judged by others. And in other places, Paul calls for Christians and Christian leaders to have a good reputation because a poor, a poor estimation of Paul would surely make his ministry to the Corinthians much harder. But why does he not care what the Corinthians think of him? There must be something bigger going on. How not to judge again? Verse 3, I care very little if I'm judged by you or any human court. It's not just those who make up the Corinthian congregations, but the opinion of any group. Paul doesn't seem to care about it. It's eyes straight ahead. Hands on your ears. Don't get diverted. I don't care what anyone thinks. Again in verse 3, I do not even judge myself. Now, I know Paul didn't do IMR, but it seems he doesn't care that he didn't. Why does he not do self-examination? Because he certainly calls for such things so many times in so many other places. And then how not to judge, verse 4. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't make me innocent. Paul has a clear conscience in how he's acted, but he doesn't use that to defend himself because not even a clear conscience is enough because a clear conscience is not the same as being innocent. You know the way that conscience works. It is always and only a one-way valve. If your conscience tells you that something is wrong, then for you it is wrong. That's the direction that the valve works. But if you engage in something and your conscience is not pricked or troubled, it doesn't mean that it's right because, as you know, our consciences can be weak or seared or even evil. So that's how not to judge. But the question still remains, why did Paul command the Corinthians not to judge? And why does Paul not judge, not even judge himself? And the answer is clear from our paragraph. It's because of the limitations to our ability to judge. There are limitations about what it is that we need to judge, the basis of how we make that judgment, the limits of our knowledge and who has the right to judge. So let's work through those four things. Firstly, what to judge. What are the Corinthians to judge Paul on? What would any human court look for? Because what you are trying to judge will determine the decision that you make. 
And if you stop for a moment and think about the way that we judge, we, we decide whether something is right or wrong or good or bad and we do it so often by using our information and emotions that have nothing to do with what is actually going on. That's why reality TV is so entertaining. Because it's not about who is the best cook. That would be one episode. But we decide who we want to win by, who we like the most, who is the nicest, who is the kindness, who is the mean one that we certainly don't want to succeed. And so we're making master chef decisions based on how you talk to another person. That's the, you've got to be very careful about how you make decisions. And so in judging the Apostle Paul, some say, I follow Paul. Well, why do you follow Paul? How do you come to that conclusion? There are so many factors that come into play for the Corinthians as they decide in their superiority whose faction they are going to be part of. You cannot do that. And so Paul is crystal clear on the basis on which he is to be judged. Verse 1. So then, men more ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. That's how he's to be judged. When you strip back his delay in coming to them, you ignore the difference in rhetorical style. The way Paul is to be judged is, is Paul a good servant? Servant's the idea of steward or master of the household. Is he a good servant in caring for what belongs to Christ? Does Paul appropriately use what God has revealed to him amongst the Corinthians? So that is the basis. So then men ought to regard us as servants of Christ and those entrusted with the secret things of God. That's how he's to be judged. But how do you work that out? How can you know if Paul is a good steward of the secret things of God? What will that look like? What does a good steward look like? Well, Paul gives the answer in verse 2. Now it's required, notice required, not useful but necessary. Now it's required that those that have been given a trust must prove faithful. It's very simple. The measure is faithfulness to Christ, Christ whose servant Paul is. That's how he's to be judged. It is simple but it's not that simple because, again, how do you measure faithfulness well, we've already heard from him how not to measure it, not by the Corinthian judgment of Paul, not by anyone's judgment of Paul, not even by Paul's own conscience, because none of those can be the certain measure of faithfulness, because they can't know enough, because there are very real limits to knowledge and very real er errors that you can make on how you make judgments. And this is something we must pay attention to. The ways that Paul says we are not to judge are so many times the way that we do judge and we simply do not possess the knowledge to judge properly. So be very wary. But then how should the Apostle's faithfulness be judged by the Corinthians and by us? Second half of verse 4, five things the Apostle says. Firstly, it is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, judge nothing before the appointed time Wait till the Lord comes and he will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motive of men's heart and at that time 
each will receive his praise from God. What a slap in the face. Paul is Christ's servant. His faithfulness to his master will be judged and rightly judged, but not by them, not by anybody else, not even by himself, but by his master. Who are you to stand in judgment? Let us who are quick to judge hear these words. Who are we to judge another man's servant? And faithfulness matters and it will be exposed. Even though it says, Paul says, wait for the appointed time, it won't be overlooked. In fact, there is a reward for faithfulness. But that disclosure and the reward that follows will be when the trumpet sounds, when the Lord returns in victorious glory and everything is laid bare and exposed, not just the actions but the motives. That is when the reward comes. That is when the disclosure comes. Because Christian faith is always eschatological. It's not just about today and tomorrow, but the eternal purposes of God. And here is yet another reminder of it. So do not judge. The Lord is the judge. Because we don't have enough information in order to make good judgments. So then, do we judge nothing? Because he says, wait until the Lord comes. Well, that might or might not be in our lifetime. Does that mean there is no place for us to make any judgments? And you've got to say, surely not, because we're told to discern who evil people are, to assess bad behaviour, to run away from those sorts of things. And as important as that question is, I won't go down that path now, but it is important to remember that Paul here is writing about judging the Lord's appointed apostle. So it is a special situation. And verses 1 to 7 is not all that there is to say on judgment. But if I explore those, we won't hear the intensity of the words of the Apostle here. Beware how we judge. Because we are quick to judge. We judge when we should not. We judge using the wrong measures and judge without all the information. This calls for humility it calls for trust and it calls for patience and we'll look a bit more at that next week. It would be easy for you and for me and in many ways painless to finish the sermon here. We could all nod in agreement of the dangers of judgmentalism but Paul goes on, there's an alternate pathway to judgmentalism that the Apostle not only points to but in fact models for us that displays the pain that you've got to go through in order not to judge and also the antidote to a judgmental spirit. And so I'm going to turn to that quickly to, as we further our thinking and our convictions. From verses 1 to 5, one thing is clear. Despite not judging himself, the Apostle is absolutely convinced that he has faithfully handled the life-giving secret things of God as a steward of Christ. And that should be our judgment on him as well. But another thing Paul does is not just to speak about not judging, but he commits himself to it and he commits himself to it at cost, a great cost of living it out. Verse 6, I have applied these things to myself and Apollos. Well, that sounds pretty simple words to write, but for him it is not just theoretical. It would have been painful. It would have been painful for him not to justify himself, painful not to disclose why his conscience is clear, painful not to, with a word, crush those wretched factions in Corinth, 
that caused so much grief. It would have been painful not to be able to rightly take the upper hand. But why does he not pass judgement? Because there is certain pain in not judging. It is There's pain in not showing people that you are right and he does it for the sake of others, for them. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos, he says in verse 6, for your benefit. And specifically the benefit of this painful cost is that the Corinthians can learn the limitations to their judging. Again, verse 6, I've applied all these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit so that you may learn from us the meaning of the saying, don't go beyond what is written. Like most modelling and change in life, it's easy for a person to say something and call others to change. But it's much more powerful and life-changing if you see it lived out. And that's what we see here in the Apostle Paul. He could have pulled rank in this factional battle. He could have appealed to his conscience and his pure motives or he could have said, look at how much other people respect me. But all of that would go beyond the word of God. It would have been easy, but you know what it would have done? All it would have done is fuel the factions. It would have led to the Paul party taking pride in their man and all the other parties being even more convinced that Paul is wrong. While it would have been the natural thing to do, it would only serve to puff the factions up further with arrogance and conceit. Had the Apostle taken the pathway of judgmentalism and superiority, it would have been of no benefit to the Corinthians. But by his actions, he now shows a different pathway, a pathway not of judgment, superiority and arrogance and conceit, but one of thanksgiving for what they have been given and what they share in common. So here, verse 7. What makes you any different from anyone else? What do you have that you didn't receive? And if you did receive it, why do you boast as though you did not? Factions and judging requires that my group be different and differentiated from other groups. But every Christian believer shares the same Lord. The same blood was shed for them the same voice pleads their case before the Father. What makes any group different or special from any other? And then when you think about the things that we so often boast about, the things that stoke our tribe's superiority, did they have their origins in you and in your tribe? No, every good thing we have, every ability comes from the kind and generous hand of God. Did you create your good theology? Did you create the resources to be at this college? Did you manufacture your ability to understand and comprehend and proclaim the word of God? Everything. Everything we take pride in is a gift from our kind and generous God. All we contribute is to receive it. And when you realise that, our attitude must be one of thankfulness and never arrogance and boasting. So do you see the difference in the pathways? Judging suppresses others 
It looks for errors and weaknesses to expose and it creates arrogance. Thankfulness enhances and promotes others. It rejoices in the blessings that they contribute. So I want to close with just a couple of practical suggestions. First, watch out for our natural superior disposition of judgmentalism. And when we see it, apologise and ask the Lord to remove it from you. Secondly, we're coming to the end of our month of thankfulness. Make that not the case. Keep looking for the blessings of God to you and the blessings of God to you and to others and be thankful for them. Thirdly, to not defend my rights, my virtue, my position takes very great patience in the here and now. Remember that the Lord will reward in the eschaton. There is no need to get justice now. Fourthly, pray that the world will see a little less of you and a lot more of our Saviour. And finally, when factions rear their ugly and malicious head, talk with each other rather than about each other. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that your gifts to us in what our Saviour did are the same as for everyone else. And we thank you that these gifts come generously from your hand. There is nothing that we can be proud and arrogant about. And so, Heavenly Father, we ask you that you would take the boasting away from us, that you would take the overconfidence away from us, that you would take our judgmental spirit away from us. Enable us to be men and women who are thankful. Amen.